Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Dr. Smith, would you mind please opening us in prayer? Absolutely, folks. And before I do, I want to uh, thank uh, Deacon Carnazzo once again for allowing me to be a part of things and for Monica and Dominique for their uh, expert technical and otherwise help. It's been quite a 24 hours for me, I want to share with you. In the last three, in the last 24 hours, four exciting things have happened. I turned 50 years old. I have the hat for my daughters here to prove it. I will not be wearing it, but it's good to be 50 in the 50 plus club. Um, I sold a house and bought a house, my wife, and I moved closer to our parish. And uh, when folks ask us, why did you um, buy a house to get a new job or something? I'm like, nope, I'm at the mountain. You'll have to drag me out of there with fingernails. But I'm, uh, we bought a house because we really love our dynamic parish and we wanted to move so close to it. And I want to encourage you to, you know, to be praying about the place that you worship and pray for it, continue to grow and to be a more part of it yourselves. So that was the uh, second and third thing that happened. And then just this afternoon before I came here, I was able to attend the Silver Jubilee ordination of my own rector, Monsignor Andrew Baker. It's his 25th year celebrating being a priest. And so I'd like to open with the prayer card that he gave out at the dinner to all the seminarians and many honored guests. So let's begin in prayer in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The world looks to the priest because it looks to Jesus. No one can see Christ but everybody sees the priest and through him, they wish to catch a glimpse of the Lord. Immense is the grandeur of the Lord. Immense is the grandeur and dignity of the priest. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest that he send harvesters into his harvest. Considering that the Eucharist is the greatest gift our Lord gives to his church. We must ask for priests since the priesthood is a gift for the church. We must pray insistently for this gift. We must ask for it on our knees. And those are the words of Pope, St. Pope John Paul II. And let's ask the intercession of Our Lady tonight for our study of Hebrews and along with the words of St. Pope John Paul the Great for a holy priest. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. And St. Pope John Paul the Great, pray for us. Pray for us. And so let's, um, let's dive in, folks. If you weren't here last week on The Odd Chance, we're in a study of the book of Hebrews called A Great Cloud of Witnesses. And as Monica was saying, we have an outline to guide us through. We're going through the entire book, entire letter, and you'll find us on page five. You'll find us on page five near the bottom, uh, letter F. Okay, so hopefully you found your way there. And let's dive in. We're in chapter 7. There's 13 chapters in the letter. So we're just about halfway through. We're making, we're making good on our promise to go through all of this. And I want you to open your Bible. As Monica said, uh, it's really important as a student of Scripture to have a physical Bible and one that you can mark up. I agree wholeheartedly with Deacon Sabatino. I require, not just suggest, but require the same of my seminarians. 
And I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And let's read the first three verses to get us started. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father and mother or genealogy and has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he, Melchizedek, continues a priest forever. Now, there's a lot in that passage, and I hope you have a pen handy as well as a Bible, because we're going to get into a very uh, rich study. And on page five, you'll see that I've got my notes for you on chapter seven. And let's dive in here. Going on in these opening verses, we hear about this priest Melchizedek. The first thing I would ask you to write down is a scripture reference. It's important to know that you should be able to cross-reference other places in scripture. And the key reference here is back to the book of Genesis. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, so 14, 17, we meet Melchizedek in Scripture. And so the author of Hebrews is reintroducing us to this very mysterious figure. So I want to make 10 points about Melchizedek. He's really crucial to what the author wants to say. And so I had 20 originally, but we're going to narrow it down to the top 10 points. So follow along with me. Okay, so on page 5 under letter F, the first of 10 points here about Melchizedek. The author says the priestly order of Melchizedek is prior to, he makes a point about how it's, it's really prior to and greater than the Levitical priesthood. That's what's going on in this chapter. So let, let's understand what he's saying. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to make sure you're really crystal clear on this. Melchizedek is the first person in sacred scripture who is called priest. He's called a Kohen, which is the Hebrew word for priest. Kohen, pronounce it with me, please. Kohen, which means priest. That's back in Genesis chapter 14. And if you go back and look at that chapter, you see this mysterious priestly figure comes out and he greets Abraham, the great father of the faith, and he offers prayers and blessings and supplications to Abraham's God which is very striking. Also striking is the fact that we don't yet have the Levitical priesthood. That does not come into play until Exodus. In fact, Exodus chapter 32 is where Israel sins by, you remember, right, creating this golden calf. Moses was up on Mount Sinai. The Israelites had, um, just within a span of weeks really, forgotten about Moses and this great a gift of the law that God gave through Moses. And in just six weeks, right, it's a period of Lent, they take all their gold and melt it down and make the image of a molten or golden calf, which was really a, an image of sacrilege because it represented the Egyptian gods that Egyptians were wor worshiping when they were back in captivity. So the point again is that Melchizedek is a priest prior to this Levitical order, because it was at the golden calf incident where God took what we might call the natural priesthood away from Israel, and I'll explain this in a second. He took it away and gave it particularly to the Levites. And the reason God did that was as a kind of chastisement. It's like God saying, 
you're no longer deserving of the priesthood, Israel. So I'm taking it away from uh, belonging to all of you and giving it particularly to this one of the 12 tribes, the Levites. The reason he chose the Levites, by the way, is because when the golden calf incident happened, the Levites rose up in a kind of a holy and righteous anger, and they, they actually did slay about 3,000 of those that were involved in this great blasphemy. And in fact, the book of Exodus says that the Levites who stood up and, and put down this great apostasy says they made themselves priests. Imagine that. They ordained themselves, which is to say that their very actions was kind of like their time in seminary. It signified their great love and devotion to the Lord, unlike the rest of Israel. Okay, back up one more step. So prior to the Levites, what did priesthood look like? Well, we have to only go back to the book of Genesis and see that Adam was called to be a priestly figure. And um, if you want to know more about how Adam's a priest, I can describe it to you in a question and answer. But for now, let's just begin there and we'll assume, rightly so, that Adam was a priest. But then you see Noah offering sacrifices on an altar after God saves uh, Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. As soon as they come to dry land, Noah builds an altar, the first altar in Scripture. That's Genesis 8. There's no Levites around. And then you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs offering uh, sacrifices on altars. So again, over and over again in Scripture, it seems like from the beginning of creation, there is what we can call a primordial priesthood, a natural gift in creation, really to all of humanity, right, and expressed particularly by those early patriarchs, of sacrificial worship. But when we come to the golden calf apostasy or blasphemy or sacrilege, God took it away from his people, Israel, and then gave it specifically to just one tribe in order to chastise his people, but not only a chastisement, in order to bless them. You see, if God did not punish that action and take the priesthood away from all of Israel and assign it to just that tribe, who knows what would have happened with worship, right? It was clear that they weren't deserving of it. Um, in the same way, I'm a father of two girls. I would, I would argue not be a good father if I would let them get away with all sorts of stuff. If I gave them gifts and they were neglecting them, I might take them away for a time in order for them to contemplate uh, just how they weren't living up to that gift. And that's exactly what happened. So in some ways, it was a chastisement. In other ways, it was a blessing because it meant that the Levites who proved themselves to be holy were going to now be charged with allowing God to bring holiness to all of God's people that God desired. So this Melchizedek is from this earlier order. Okay? That's the first big point. Now let's move on and get uh, the wheels rolling here. Point number two on the bottom of page five. In saying that he was without father and mother, did you catch that? Maybe that, you said, well, what's that about, right? It says he's without father and mother, and we all have father and mothers, right? The only one who, who didn't was Adam, right? So. Um, in saying that Melchizedek did not have a father and mother, um, the author, the sacred author, is not being literal here, but he is being symbolic. What he's saying is that Melchizedek's priesthood did not come from his natural-born earthly father. Okay, the Levites became priests by descent from their fathers. They had to be born a Levite. If you weren't a Levite, you couldn't be a priest. And in fact, if you wanted to be a high priest, you needed to be actually descended from Aaron or the so-called Aaronic high priesthood. Okay, so what that means is it's not that he didn't have a father and mother in the natural sense, but that he did not inherit his priesthood from his father, if that makes sense. 
And that's a very important point, that number one, Melchizedek is representing this purer, earlier uh, plan of priesthood. You might say God's original design of priesthood that he wanted to bless humanity with before it was taken away. And number two, that Melchizedek did not receive that gift of ordination, you might say, by being born a Levite. It's simply that he was given it by God. Okay? Now, Melchizedek is important because the author of this book is going to keep going back to him for several chapters to insist, rightly so, that Jesus's priesthood is not from his parents, because neither Mary nor Joseph were Levites. I know this was a question about this last time, but neither, uh, neither Mary nor Joseph were Levites. They were from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, Jesus would not have been qualified to be a priest, let alone a high priest. And so what he's trying to tell us in the big picture is that Jesus's priesthood is of a different type. And the only other, two, the only other figure in scripture who is called a priest after the type or order of Melchizedek is King David in Psalm 110. So that's the third point. The sacred author's argument rests decisively on Psalm 110, where David is described as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews is in some sense making a kind of a very spiritual argument. He's saying that Jesus is truly and rightly a legitimate high priest. And he's going to go on to say, not just a legitimate high priest, but a spotless high priest, a perfect high priest, unlike the fallible and mortal priests of the Levites. He is also going to say that Jesus's priesthood does not descend from the Levites. Therefore, Jesus is not subject to the insufficiencies that accompanied the Levites. Okay, let's move on. Um, the last point on the page, point number four, is that beginning in verse 11, and we should read this in just a moment, the sacred author of Hebrews explains that the priesthood of Melchizedek was established by God prior to, as I said, the Levitical priesthood. Let's read chapter 7, verse 11. Turn over to verse 11, if you would, with me. And the author says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, parentheses, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named according to the order of Aaron? So I think what the author is doing here is you might say he's heading off a logical question, anticipating a question the audience is going to have by answering in advance, right? He's not even going to wait for the follow-up to the letter. He's going to say, I know what some of you are thinking, right? And he's going to give us the answer here. The answer is that this order or type or pattern of priesthood that was Melchizedek's was prior to and also greater than that of uh, the Levites, which came later. So if you look at the verse again, we are reminded that the law was given along with an, uh, this gift of the Levitical priesthood. And his question here, it's kind of a rhetorical question, is if you know, that Mosaic covenant had reached perfection and the people received the law from the Mosaic covenant, why would there be a need for another priesthood? Now comes the answer in verse 12. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, 
there is necessarily also a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to, here it is, another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. And here he's beginning to ramp up his case and talk about how Jesus's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites, which was an important role for a period of time in salvation history. Nevertheless, Melchizedek is, was not subjected to the natural and uh, fallible um, dimensions of the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, it's earlier, it's God's original design, and it's greater. And that's the priesthood that he's going to communicate that Jesus' priesthood derives from. Given by God as this anointed, mystical gift, the first of the kind being Melchizedek, Melchizedek, who is what we would call a type of Jesus Christ, that is to say, a foreshadowing. Okay? Turn the page, if you would, to page six. Now, this is crucial. This point is crucial because Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, but of Judah. You may remember, um, if you look back at the genealogies, both in Matthew and Luke's gospel, we get the genealogy that trace Jesus's line back to King David, who, of course, was of the tribe of Judah. David was a Bethlehemite. Uh, his father was Jesse, and their family was of the tribe of Judah. They were not Levites. This is very, very clear. There's no doubt about it that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So if you remember last week, I suggested that the likely audience, the original audience of this letter, was largely a Jewish audience, most probably and plausibly a priestly class of Jewish priests in and around the Jerusalem temple. In other words, mostly Levites. Now, maybe you're beginning to connect the dots and see what the problem is here, right? These people who are receiving the letter are either Christian believers or on the fence of about to become Christian, but they're also, by background, Jews, obviously, and also, very plausibly and likely, a class of priests that were Levites. So, on one hand, their loyalties lie, naturally, right, with the high priesthood and with their temple duties and temple sacrifices. But early Christianity is beginning to proclaim the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but that his altar was Calvary, right? As they would go to worship and receive the sacrifice of the Mass and the Holy Eucharist. And as these teachings are beginning to, to move out in early Christianity from the very earliest times, this became problematic for this audience. Now, I made this point last week, but I don't know if all of you caught it, so I'll say it again. This letter is very strategic because you may be thinking, well, this sounds like a technical letter, and it's written to priests, and that's interesting, but how does that really affect the big picture of early Christianity? I would argue that it would have been a domino effect in a good way, because if this author could reach and penetrate the hearts and minds of this priestly class and convert them to Christ, imagine the influence that would have for all the people that those priests reach, not only in their families, but for all of those that they interact with at the temple. Okay, point number six. We've got four more to go here on Melchizedek. A crucial piece of the argument lies in verse 15 of chapter seven, where the sacred author discusses Melchizedek's priesthood, I've already alluded to this, not being constrained by Levitical or Aaronic birth, but by the power of an indestructible life. 
Look down with me, if you would, at verse 15. He says, verse 14, that it is evident that our Lord, Jesus Christ, was descended from Judah, just as David was. And in connection with that, the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, there was no priestly connection to, the, um, to those that were descended from Judah. Verse 15, now he goes on to say this. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, here it is, not according to a legal requirement, in other words, like birth certificate, right? Concerning bodily descent, in other words, who his father and who his father was, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, Melchizedek, you are a priest forever according to the order or pattern of Melchizedek. And so here again, he's underscoring that point that Jesus is indeed a high priest. There's no argument about that. And he's going to go on to talk more about what that priesthood means. But he's boldly making that point, knowing full well that Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, but indeed of the tribe of Judah. So he's not trying to pull a fast one on these people. He's not trying to say, hey, you know, Jesus was, he was actually a Levite. He's telling the truth, and he recognizes that Jesus would have been disqualified um, by the book of Leviticus itself, by Scripture, to be a priest, let alone a high priest. However, the argument he's making is different. The argument he's making is, guess what, guys? Jesus was not a, a Levite, and in this case, that's actually a good thing because it shows that the kind of priesthood God gifted to his son was not the kind of priesthood that God gave back in the day of Moses all the way up to the time of Jesus. In other words, the Levitical priesthood. It was of a higher order. Point number 8, 9, and 10, then quickly. Chapter 7 concludes, this is point 8, with the sacred author contrasting these Levitical priests who were sinful, fallible, you know, human beings, right? Contrast those high priests of the Levitical order with Jesus who is untrammeled by death, right? Fresh from the resurrection, right? And the proclamation of the witness of Jesus' bodily resurrection, this would have really resonated as they read this. And able to save for all time those who draw near to God. A couple of key verses I have for you here, verse 23 and 25. Let's, let's read that paragraph together. The former priests were many in number, Talking again about the Levites, because this is a really interesting argument, right? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, he's saying in this verse, the reason you had a new high priest after another new high priest after another new high priest is because they got old and aged, right? And eventually they died. And if that high priest died, you need to have someone take his place. We just went through the passion uh, narrative, right? On... Um, during Easter um, and during Holy Week. And you may remember in the, uh, the reading of the Passion Narrative that it talked about Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. In John's Gospel, it says he was high priest that year. But there was another high priest, Annas, A-N-N-A-S, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was sort of like the um, high priest emeritus, sort of like the retired CEO who still has a vested stake in the company. 
And so they both had power. Caiaphas had the legitimate seat of power, but Annas was obviously older than him as Caiaphas's father-in-law was getting up in years and was no longer probably equipped to do the job of the high priest. And so Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the priest. But there's a good example of it, how year after year, there would be different priests who circulated in and out because of death. Verse 24, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he's not bound by death, right? Because he continues forever. This is one of the most beautiful proclamations in the book that subtly brings in here, but very powerfully too, right? Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Jesus is not bound by death. His priesthood continues to animate the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Unlike those Levitical priests that had a certain power to forgive sins, but only in their earthly lifetime. And he's going to go on to remind us, even when they exercised that authority, it was as sinful men. They needed to first go into the Holy of Holies, which I showed you last week, and atone for their own sins first. And then having been forgiven by God, they could atone for the sins of Israel. Jesus did not have that need to atone for his own sins because he was sinless. So you see the argument that he's making. He's not trying to disparage the Levitical high priesthood. But what he is trying to do is to contrast the old covenant and the old priesthood with the new covenant and new priesthood and the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. And then verse 25 and I'm hoping you're making these notes in your Bible so that next time you're reading it or praying through it, you'll have some of these, these notes with you. Verse 25, consequently, here comes a big conclusion in the chapter. Jesus, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, so that in some uh, sense wraps up what I want to say to you about chapter 7. To conclude, point number 10, this is the last point on page 6. For all these reasons, Jesus is unique, singularly unique as high priest. He and he alone could offer up himself as a definitive, once-for-all, unrepeatable sacrifice for sinners. Did you catch what's happening here? Look at verse 26 and 27. Verse 26, this gets really, me really excited. Verse 26, underscoring what he's already said about Jesus after priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he now talks about how this eternal and spotless high priest is a priest who offers and atones for sins of all people for all times because he's not bound by death and he is untainted by sin, right? Unlike the Levites. What sacrifice does he offer? Not a goat, not a lamb but his own flesh. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. No, there's more than that. He is the eternal high priest, and he is the perfect sacrifice. Beautiful verses here, folks. Look at verse 26 and 27 of chapter 7. He writes, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, unstained, Right again in regard to his sinless state, holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, but exalted above the heavens. He has, the author says, no need, no need like those high priests, the Levites, to offer sacrifices daily, 
first for his own sins and then for those of his people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. I have to pause here from the notes and say, you know, sometimes Catholics are really challenged by non-Catholic Christians and others about the, um, they'll say things like, oh, you know, you Catholics believe that Jesus is being sacrificed over and over again on the cross. That's why many Protestants won't wear a crucifix or, you know, they'll say Jesus is risen. Indeed, he's risen. But they'll get into this issue of how Jesus offered up himself once for all. He's not, you know, he's not being sacrificed over and over again on the cross. That's what they think. But that's not the dogma of the church. That's not the teaching of the church, of the church folks, right? The teaching is that Jesus indeed offered himself up once for all. Praise God. But when we receive the Holy Eucharist at the Mass, it is not he that is being sacrificed again over and over again. That did happen, right, in April of 33 AD. But what is happening is we are taken back through time and space to that date in Calvary when we receive the Holy Eucharist. It is not a re-sacrifice of Jesus' body, but we are being recapitulated and brought to that very cross with Mary and with John. On page um, bottom of page six, and so that concludes another great chapter in the book. We're going to move on now to chapter eight. So on page six, hopefully you see the note there where it begins chapter eight, letter G. We're making headway here. Chapter eight begins this way. Now the point in what we are saying is this. I always find it helpful when an author reminds us of his big idea, and here we come to really. What Albert Van Hoy, the great Catholic theologian, Albert Van Hoy said is really the key verse of the book. And I think he's right. Here's what it says. Now, the point of what we've been saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister of, in the sanctuary, and the true tent the true tabernacle, which is set up not by men, not by man, excuse me, but by the Lord. Okay, so Albert Van Hoy, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, says, and this is in your outline, that um, Hebrews 8.1 has a key word, a clue for us, that the sacred author has arrived at the peak, the pinnacle, the apex, in terms of the climax of the book. It's not in chapter 13, it's right here, right in the middle of it. When he writes, now the point, uh, de kephalion is the Greek. And in Koine Greek, uh, kephalion can refer to the main point or actually a sum of money. So jokingly, I say, this is the money quote of the book. Even the Greek seems to give that away. The money quote, meaning this is the, the payoff, right? The de kephalion, the sum of money, the, uh, the gist of it is right here. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if you look on the page, I want to make some more points about this chapter. And let's bring Psalm 110 in, which we alluded to earlier. You don't have to turn there, unless you're unfamiliar with it, then I would like you to turn there to recall that key verse in Psalm 110, verse 4, where it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And let's read the notes here. Psalm 110, upon which the author of Hebrews has been heavily relying throughout the letter, begins with the expression, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And I want to clarify this for you because some people get confused by the language, like which Lord is talking? I mean, how does the Lord talk to himself for, after all, right? But it's a small L in the second Lord. 
right? Like people would say, uh, my Lord, right? My, 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 my master. So the Lord, capital L, meaning God, said to my Lord, small L, which is David. Above the Psalm 110, we're told it's a Psalm of David. So translation would be, the Lord, my Lord said to David, sit at my right hand. So he's really drawing upon two key figures now, right? Melchizedek and now David. Jesus is, in other words, this Lord and high priest who is seated at the hand of God the Father. In other words, Psalm 110 was describing David, but in some shadowy way was also pointing forward to the New Testament, which the author of Hebrews picks up upon and connects those dots for us. Jesus, right, is the spotless and eternal high priest of God who now sits at the right hand of God forever. Another thing that, that uh, a lot of non-Catholics, and even for that matter, Catholics don't understand, is why Jesus' ascension was necessary, right? Why didn't Jesus stick around? Why the ascension, right? Um, I, I kind of feel like the ascension is one of those great mysteries of our faith that a lot of Catholics don't contemplate often enough. We do really well as Catholics with Good Friday and, and the crucifixion and the, uh, the resurrection, but the ascension is a crucial part of our creed and it's a crucial part of our faith because Jesus ascending to the Father is Jesus coming fully into his kingdom, right? What's a king without a kingdom? Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, but when he ascends and returns to the Father, right, it is Jesus taking his place on his heavenly throne at the Father's side in order to rule his kingdom and pour out his graces. And so Jesus's priesthood continues and is ongoing in the heavenly realms. And he is ministering and atoning for us, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Okay, hey, uh, letter I. The remainder of chapter eight builds upon what I call this high priestly Christology. In other words, just what we've been talking about here, this high priestly Christology. Even as the author is going to return to it again and again, and now he's going to go in and talk about um, the first covenant. He's going to be pretty scathing here to warn you. He's going to get pretty scathing about the old covenant because he wants in some ways to admonish these uh, first century Jewish uh, priests, these Levites, to move beyond the old covenant and into the new. He's a very pastoral author, right? He's concerned about the audience, where they're at in their lives, and this is a stumbling block for them. So he's going to go further. And letter J, here's what he says. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. Very interesting verse, by the way. He says, for every high priest, Levites, right, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, right? High priest goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and offers uh, up a, the blood of goat and puts it on the mercy seat, which is over the Ark of the Covenant. So he brings a gift into the Lord, right? So he's saying here, every priest does that on that Day of Atonement. They go in and offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Well, which priest is he talking about? Now he's talking about Jesus Christ, right? And let's be honest. Um, if he's a high priest, then he should be offering something up to God, right? That's what a high priest does. So that's the point he wants to make, except what he's going to say is what he offers is something greater than that flesh of a goat or a lamb. What he offers is his own flesh. And that's again in verse three and four. So letter K on the bottom of six, 
not only is the uh, corrupted nature of this Old Testament priesthood being brought up and in some sense put in their face, say kind of, you know, deal with that, but the temple itself. He's now going after not just the priesthood and in some sense critiquing it. He's also going after that temple itself where the sacrifices occurred. He wants to remind them that that temple in Jerusalem, as beautiful and holy as it was intended to be, was only a copy and shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. And I have a note there to see Exodus 25 after the lecture's over, because in Exodus 25, we are told right there in Exodus that the Jerusalem temple was indeed a, a kind of a copy of the heavenly original tabernacle. Okay, Turn the page, if, uh, if you would, to page 7. We're going to keep moving along here. And again, in chapter 8, the author is going to make the point that Jesus ministers in a greater tabernacle. So not only do we have a greater high priesthood in Jesus, we also have a greater temple or tabernacle in which he serves. Uh, the word in Greek, much more excellent, is how he describes it. Much more excellent than the one of the high priest of the Old Covenant. Look at chapter 8, verse 6, and you can see it right there. Now, we're going to move on to uh, chapter 9. Chapter 8 is fairly brief, and that's the main point here, to kind of bring the critique of the temple in alongside the critique of uh, the priesthood. Chapter 9 opens uh, with the sacred author uh, contrasting the two tabernacles. And just so we're clear, by tabernacle, we have a certain impression of what that word means in Catholicism, but in the context of Scripture, um, the tabernacle was... Uh, another word for the temple. And the tabernacle in the oldest time of the Levitical priesthood was indeed uh, called the tabernacle, or as I like to think of it, the temple on wheels, right? Because they were wheeling it through the wilderness. From the time God told Moses and Aaron to build it in the wilderness for those 40 years of wandering had to be on wheels, right? Because they were on their way to the promised land. And it was nowhere near as large or as grand uh, as the one that was built on Mount Zion in, um, in Jerusalem. So this is what we're talking about by the tabernacle. Okay, look with me, if you would, at page uh, 7. We're turning now to chapter 9, having gone through 7 and 8. And as I say here in uh, letter N, as the chapter opens, the author is going to contrast the two tabernacles, that is to say the earthly one, right, of the old covenant, with the heavenly one. And all along, he's got this larger... Um, purpose, right? All along, he's trying to guide this audience, this priestly audience, to leave behind their former worship. That's not easy to do, right? It's not easy to do in uh, 60, AD, uh, 60 AD. It's not easy to do in, in 2016. And so this is a challenge, and he knows it. He's asking them to go beyond their Levitical Judaism and embrace fully Jesus Christ as their true high priest, as their um, true temple. Letter O, he describes the holy objects that are in the holy place, the menorah and so on. And um, he takes them into the holy of holies, the place where the high priest goes. Let's take a look at this. It's in chapter 9, verses 2 through 5. Uh, he's describing here the holy place behind the second curtain stood a tent. Where there was a veil, in other words, between the holy place where ordinary priests could go and the sanctum sanctorum or 
holy of holies, where only the high priest could go, that one individual, and but once a year on the Day of Atonement. Okay, now, he's got us in the Holy of Holies. What does he want to tell us? Well, let's look at it. In verse 6, these preparations, having thus been made, he writes, the priests go continually into the outer tent, performing their ritual duties, their priestly duties, but into the second one, that is to say that innermost place, only the high priest goes, and him but once a year on that day of atonement. What, uh, it's, not in, it's not called Yom Kippur in scripture, but you may know of it as Yom Kippur, that, that fall high feast of uh, day of atonement and forgiveness of sins. It says, but goes in once, but once a year and not without taking blood. Remember, you have to go in with an offering. So he takes in blood, which he offers for himself. Why? Because he's a sinful man. He had to fast and pray for seven days before going in in order to prepare himself as a sinful person and also for the errors of the people that is Israel. But the Holy Spirit I haven't heard a mention of the Holy Spirit directly here, but now here it comes. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet open as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic, he says, for the present age. According to this, this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are, are offered, which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What he's getting at here is that um, in a certain sense, um, and this comes as a surprise to many, um, in Judaism, there was not a sense of forgiveness of every sin. We sometimes imagine that there was, but there was a yearning for a, a deeper sense of forgiveness. Leviticus talks about how certain sins were, were not forgiven, right? If someone blasphemed, which is to say not a slip of the tongue, but a blasphemer, someone who vehemently and willfully and continually blasphemes God, Leviticus say, said that a, a, a priest and judge could um, essentially excommunicate him, in which he's no longer eligible to be part of that community. So there was a greater hope for a deeper sense of forgiveness. Okay, so that high priest went into this solemn place but once a year. Now letter O on the page. After describing these holy objects, he leads us into this holy place, where that high priest went. This is exactly where he wants to take us to now contrast what happened on Good Friday with Jesus Christ. Letter P, he's now well positioned to offer us an amazing revelation that Jesus, the eternal high priest, not bound by death, has upon Calvary entered once for all into the Holy of Holies. Did this by means of his own blood. And I have the Greek for you here. Dia tu edu Hymatos, by his own blood. Let's read together verses 12, 13, and 14, shall we? Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood. That was his offering, thus securing what he calls an eternal redemption. Remember, the point I'm stressing in, in, in um, Levitical Judaism, in um, Judaism, there was a sense in which you needed to continually have and ask for that forgiveness of sins. And it was not an eternal redemption, right? It was one that was kind of temporal 
and needed to be constantly reapplied through the high priest going in and over and over again asking for forgiveness of sins daily, right? And then he says in verse 13, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, then how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself? Remember, this is one of the most mind-blowing parts of the book. He's making this strategic argument that Jesus is not only the eternal high priest who goes in with some kind of better offering, but with his own flesh, which is not subjected to sin. Letter Q. Therefore, Jesus is the mestice, the mediator or key stakeholder is the Greek sense, of a new covenant, a brand new covenant, so that those who are called may receive what he calls an eternal inheritance in verse 15. Um, let's look at chapter 10. I'm, I'm very mindful of our time here. I want to make sure we get through as much of the letter as we can. In chapter 10, he brings, starts to bring the letter to a close now in, in 10, 11, and 12. And in chapter 10, um, he in, concludes his discussion of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Look at chapter 10, um, verse 1 and following. Let's read just a bit of it here. He says, For since the law, the Mosaic law, right, uh, has but a shadow of the good things yet to come, instead of the true form of those realities, that is to say Jesus Christ, the true priest, the true temple, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, because Jesus Christ is perfect, it brings to perfection, unlike the old covenant, which could not, it brings to perfection those who draw near to him. So now he's going to enter really into kind of pastoral part of the letter where he's going to say, look, I've given you all this rich Christology, and the, and the purpose of it now is to bring it home. Um, I might put it this way, he's going for the close. He's going for the close, and he wants to bring them to a call to holiness, to perseverance, to faith, and I would argue to conversion. Okay, so that's what's going on in these latter chapters. Uh, letter I, so uh, near the bottom of page 7, so you and then I. In chapter 10, verse 9, uh, 19 to 39, these people are admonished to enter the heavenly sanctuary. Let's face it, in many ways, he's gone into a very sustained and, frankly, rather dense explanation of who Jesus is, what we would call Christology. Now he's really getting into uh, ecclesiology, which is to say the audience's role as members and congregation of the church. Now look at chapter 10, verse 20, 19 and 20. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. Now he's just saying it, right? He's no longer even explaining. He's just now saying it. By the new and living way in which he opened for us, very key phrase here, the, through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, little play in words here, right? The house of God is now not the temple, but the, uh, the church. Um, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I'm in chapter 10, verse 22. And um, with our hearts sprinkled clean, that's temple language, right? The priest sprinkling the blood over that um, um, Ark of the Covenant, right? In the Holy of Holies. Now it's sprinkled over us, which is in a sense a reminder of baptism, right? 
sprinkled our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water indeed there is a direct reference there to our baptism what would it look like if every catholic understood that this is what was happening indeed it did happen in our baptism and if we could also help many catholics to raise up to new heights of, of christology and understanding of who our lord really is as our spotless lamb as our high priest as our great and eternal offering interceding for us and then I would argue to share that truth, not only with every Catholic we know, but all those Christians who are hungering for the body and blood of Jesus Christ outside of the communion of the church. How amazing that would be. The curtain that he talks about is a dual reference. I'm at the bottom, very bottom of page seven. Uh, when I think of a curtain, right? Like the curtains in your living room. Well, the curtain that he's talking about here is a, a different kind of reference. Uh, the Greek word's given there for you in verse 20, but I want to explain what, what he's talking about. On one hand, this term describes the blue veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the vestibule of the, the outer um, holy place of the, of the temple building, right? So this uh, is separated by this blue veil. And in that sense, that would have been what they called to mind. But the flesh, the, sorry, the curtain that he's talking about is not that blue veil, but Jesus' own flesh. And if you remember in the Gospels, what happens to that veil? It's torn in two. So in one sense, he's describing that veil that they all would have been conversant with and have seen, many of them with their own eyes, when they served in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, but in that outer holy place room where they would have looked upon that blue veil as the place the farthest place they could go right and not beyond it and then he describes the curtain of jesus's flesh um, and so i have a beautiful quote here from the early church father saint ephraim which i know is uh, one of monica's and one of deacon sabatino's favorite saints right and one of mine as well uh, saint ephraim is amazing um, but he says this commenting on hebrews he says therefore brothers saint this is now saint ephraim we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, which is the faith. In his blood, in Jesus' blood, he renewed for us the way of faith that the former priests had had already. But since it, that former priesthood, had become obsolete among them, he renewed it for us at that time through the curtain that is his own flesh. Beautiful. Beautiful and very, very thought-provoking, right? Believe it or not, folks, we're up to chapter 11. We've got a few minutes left here, so I think we're going to make good to try to make our way through the book. Chapter 11 is and 12 are really the final sections, folks, of the book. And they're some of the most uh, poetic and beautiful and inspiring. Because here, um, just before the doxology, he turns from Christology to ecclesiology and to encouragement to holy living. That's what these chapters are all about. So if you've hung on this far last week and this week, the good news is it's like we're close to the finish line and the rest of it is all encouragement, very practical encouragement. Uh, what kinds of encouragements? Well, to walk in holiness, to write worship, to charity, to practice charity, to practice chastity, very interesting, and to have peace of heart. He also exhorts them to submit to their Christian leaders as unto Christ himself. So it's interesting. I find that last point interesting because this author is aware that in writing to priests, these are, are people, these are men, right, who abide by obedience. They were obedient to the high priest. Whatever 
you know, this author thought about that high priest and is kind of kind of downgrading him in some sense. He wants to say, look, you were obedient to what you knew. Now you need to be obedient to your priests and bishops as unto Jesus Christ. Okay, now we come to a chapter I think many of you probably are familiar with, and I want to just give you the big picture of it. It's what I call the Hall of Fame of the New Testament, or some call it the Hall of Faith, because what he does um, generally in chapter 11 is he presents all of these beautiful uh, men and women of the Old Testament as, the, as virtuous lives, examples of what holiness looks like. Um, I want to give you a reading assignment, because many of you will be familiar with chapter 11 and some of this material. Um, I want to encourage you to read, to write this down on your own, Sirach, book of Sirach, chapter 44 through 50, or just scan through it. And you'll find uh, that this chapter is really, in many ways, I would argue, built upon or similar to Sirach 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50. Um, because those chapters really exemplify all the faith-filled characters of the Old Testament, like Enoch and Nathan, uh, who spoke to David, David, Solomon, and many, many others. And so it'd be well worth reading. But both of those sections of Scripture, Old Testament and New, Sirach and Hebrews, are meant to inspire and encourage us. All we need to do is, all he needs to do, I should say, is call up their lives and say one or two things about them, and it should click in our minds that these are people we, whose lives we can imitate. So let's look at a couple. In uh, Hebrews chapter 11, he starts this way. Now, the, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. What a great definition of faith, right? We have probably, you probably have uh, family members or friends that are not practicing their faith, or maybe when you talk to them, they have this idea that faith is this kind of a blind faith, right? Not at all so. And I've given you a wonderful footnote, uh, footnote 20 from Pope Benedict, which I won't read, from his encyclical on, on faith, where he quotes the book of Hebrews in this very verse. But the author of Hebrews and Pope Benedict are really reminding us that faith is not taking a blind leap, although it feels that way sometimes, right? But it is a kind of assurance, a down payment of things that are already at work in us. That's what he is saying, this author here. At the top of page eight, letter B, the word, for, uh, the word here is not really assurance, but substance. And I want to be picky uni or too inside baseball-y with you, but the word uh, is hypostasis. Uh, um, and the Latin Vulgate uses the word for substance. So a, a word study of this verse would tell us to go even beyond the Greek and draw upon also the Latin Vulgate and meditate upon the various translations to see that, yeah, we can say assurance, provided we mean substance. Well, what's substance? Hey, I, I have my, my, my computer and my, my uh, laptop and my water on the substance of this table. I can feel it. There it is, right? That's substance. It's not a pipe dream. It's not, it's not abstract. It's concrete. So you could translate it this way. Faith is the concreteness or material of things that we hope for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And they've already been begun in us through our baptism. Beautiful definition of faith. One of the most wonderful, I think, in the entire Bible. Now, I'm not going to go through all of chapter 11. That's going to be another homework assignment for you. But you can see he gives so many examples, right? He uh, describes Abraham, uh, beginning in verse 8, as uh, an example of faith par excellence. Um, he talks about how Abraham left everything, uh, sojourned in a foreign land, 
roamed around like a nomad. And then he says this, look at verse 19. This is striking. Um, he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Um, and who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only begotten son. In fact, the word in Genesis, the word in Genesis, um, only begotten, in the Greek version of Genesis, is the same word that John uses, monogenes. Say it with me, monogenes. Monogenes, like uh, one of a kind. Um, and that's, a, that, that's looking forward to John saying, right, for God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes, his only begotten son. Well, that's what Abraham was doing with Isaac, another prefigurement. Okay, then he goes on to say this about Abraham. Abraham considered that God was able to raise the dead, to raise men back even from the dead. Because you remember when Isaac is there, and he says, Father, I see the wood and the fire, but where is the offering? What does Abraham say? Don't worry, son. God will provide. And so the author of Hebrews goes beyond even what Abraham expresses and looks at Abraham's life and says, in some sense, in some mystical way, perhaps Abraham had some sort of revelation of Jesus Christ, or at least had the faith that God would bring his son back from the dead. Do we have that kind of faith? That God can really truly move the mountains in front of us? Sarah, he's, he's an equal opportunity here, men and women. Many examples of both men and women. So take a look at what he says about Sarah, who overcame her doubts. He goes on to talk about Moses. And then uh, look at 1129. Uh, he says, he names the people of Israel. This is really interesting to me because oftentimes we kind of lampoon them, right? And even the Bible calls them stiff-necked people. But here they're kind of glowing with halos, right? And he says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Here comes another holy woman, right? Um, after they'd been circled by, uh, uh, encircled by seven days by the Israelites. And by faith, Rahab, uh, the harlot, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. And folks, there's no whitewashing it. She also lied in the process. And we can kind of talk about how that all works. But the reality was she was a... Uh, you know, a fallible person, but she had this immense faith in the God of the Israelites. And then as if to say, I could go on further and further and further, look at verse 32. He says, and what more shall I say? There's not time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, like he's saying, hey, we could stay here all night and talk about all these folks, and we can continue to have many virtuous lives in which to draw inspiration from. Coming to the end, folks, since I want to make sure we finish well here, chapter 12, verse 2 has another really highlight of the book for us. Let's read 1 and 2. Therefore, being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right, which is our theme for this series at the Institute, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay hold, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and run the race with perseverance, the race which is set before us, looking to Jesus as the pioneer or author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The whole book, in many ways, has been like a race, right? And now he draws upon athletic. Um, categories and tells 
them and tells us to run in this extraordinary faith, extraordinary race, with great assurance and strength of what we have been promised all along in our baptism. And thanks be to God for our parents. So many of us were baptized by our parents, not even knowing all that was going on in our lives when we were such young children. He admonishes them about sexual morality, admonishes them about leadership. And now we come to another great verse in 1224 as our time is winding down towards the end. Verse 24, beautiful paragraph about Jesus Christ, which is you just have to read slowly and over and over again. In verse 24, he says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He once again wants to admonish people to stay in community, to listen to their pastors, to grow. Look at verse 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We need to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes it feels like so many winds are shaking the church and shaking our parishes and we're worried. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not built just on a man. And we say it's built on Peter, but ultimately it's built on Jesus Christ, right? The eternal spotless lamb, an eternal priest who's at the right hand of the Father. And my favorite verse in the book, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire, drawing right from the book of, of Exodus. Let's conclude, because we're just about out of time now, with this final benediction on page, uh, um, on the last page, and chapter 13, verse 20. And we'll offer this as our prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, do his will working in you, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Smith, for a wonderful second part and for the whole series, too. Um, it was really a, a delight to hear you talk about this and to enlighten us in this way. So Thank, I you. Thank that. you, everyone. My pleasure. All right, Dr. Smith, if you're ready, I think yep, we'll yep. start so we can get, um, get going with the questions. Um, First of all, I have a question coming in from Locke. What do the Jews of today think of this, te this text? Okay, so the question is, and before I get to it, I just want to say a thank you to everyone for sticking through. You know, the book of Hebrews um, is a book I think that um, maybe Catholics don't get to read often enough, and a lot of it is confusing, so I hope we've tried to give you the big picture um, and it's certainly been so enjoyable. I um, mean, you've got a lot of notes, so I hope you're going to go and continue to study the book. But to the question, um, the question of what do Jews today think of this text? It's kind of, for me, a difficult question to answer, uh, primarily because, humbly, I don't, um, I don't get to interact as often as I would like with um, Jewish scholars. Sometimes when, when I'm in the Holy Land, uh, I'll try to go to interfaith conferences. I have some friends here who, uh, and in fact, some um, relatives that are Jewish, but um, they, I think, are unfamiliar with this book. So I don't really have as much experience on the ground with it, so it would be hard to answer out of experience. But I, I suppose that, like the rest of the New Testament, it would be something that is considered uh, 
uh, foreign, just as the Gospels are. It's not part of their tradition, obviously. My, my suspicion is that most probably don't know what the contents are about. And if they did, probably um, would, would probably be pretty puzzled by it. Um, certainly, maybe scholarly uh, you know, people as historians or theologians would, they would at least be conversant. But I think average Jews uh, today of various sorts probably are unfamiliar with the book altogether, just as they're probably unfamiliar um, with, um, with the New Testament. I was listening to, um, uh, a while back, um, the, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and um, he's a very intelligent man, right? But I was, he was making some a kind of a political speech where he mentioned the New Testament, and um, he kind of got it pretty badly wrong. <laughs> pretty badly wrong. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just not his, not his element. He's not a theologian, so I've got to grant him that. But, but my point is that I think many Jews really probably are unfamiliar with this book. And I bet it would be very provocative if the faithful Jewish person were to sit down and read it, even take a part of it and say, oh, wow, he's talking about these are things that belong to us, like high priesthood and, and Jewish rituals and the temple. So maybe they would actually find it beautiful, even if they didn't agree with it. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Um, we have another question, in, question coming in asking, could you explain again what ecclesiology is? Um, you mentioned it, but if you could explain it again. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of times in, um, in our faith, we have so many ologies and isms. And so I'm glad you brought it up because by ecclesiology, I simply mean a theology of the church or what the church is called to be. So for example, Vatican II, uh, articulated in ecclesiology, right, of the church in the modern age, or in, I was trying to touch on here, that this author was trying to describe um, how this um, group of individuals was called to live as a community. So uh, it's really from the word ecclesia in Greek, which means assembly or church. So like when Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this ecclesia, I will, um, I will build my church, a, a, an assembly um, or a community. And so my point was that he spends really, you know, like 10, 11 chapters going deeply into the uh, identity of Jesus Christ. But he's not simply a theologian. He's a pastor at heart. Um, and that's, you know, where in the latter parts of the book, he gives all this encouragement to holy living, to chastity, you know, run from sexual immorality. And if he was only interested in um, capturing their minds, he might have stopped, you know, at chapter um, eight, nine, or 10. But because I would argue he's a pastor who cares for his people, even calls, you know, Jesus the shepherd at the end, you know, he's probably thinking about his own shepherding of them, that his desire is not just to capture their minds, but their hearts. And he really has them in the best way where he wants them, where he opened up to truth. But if he stopped at chapter 10, he would have given them Christology, which is, this is who Jesus is, without giving them, well, what should we do about it? How should we live? So ecclesiology or morality. One, just one more point. is St. Paul does the same thing often. Um, we, I did a series on Ephesians for the Institute a while back, and I explained that there's six chapters in Ephesians. The first three are all about who Jesus is. And then uh, the last three chapters are really all about how Paul wants the Ephesians to live. And one of the beautiful things about not only the um, apostles of the 
New Testament, but also the early church fathers, is they never just left it at theology. Fill up your mind with knowledge. They always, always taught theology and then said, now this is what you should do with it. So Paul wants to tell the Ephesians, this is how I want you to live. But he begins with, this is who you are. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is who you are as a Christian. Now um, live out who you are. And um, Pope John Paul said something very similar to families. He said, families become who you, become what you are. And he did that in a letter to families where he spends many, many words talking about what the family is. And it's like once people go, oh, I get it. That's who we are. Then John Paul II says, okay, now live that out. And so it's beautiful. Christian pastors, whether it's in the Bible, the early church fathers, or John Paul II, good pastors will always teach us and remind us what we're to do with these truths, to take them from our mind down 18 inches to our hearts. And that's what he's doing at the end. Thank you. Um, we're getting another question from Anne Marie McNew in Texas, um, asking Dr. Smith if you could explain chapter 9, verses 15 to 18. She says, my Bible uses the word will um, in line, uh, or verse 16, for where, where will is involved, the death of the one made, who, of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Is this a play on words that you can explain? Yeah, so some of the language in uh, chapter 9 gets a little, um, I guess you'd call it a little bit uh, legalistic. What he's really talking about here, just big picture for those folks that are listening at home, is he's talking about the fact that, um, verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death. That's true in our day as well, right? So um, if uh, a person has a number of... Um, a number of um, um, family members that they want to gift or empower their their treasures, their finances to. It only takes a effect once the person has passed on. So look at verse 19. Uh, he says, verse 18, hence even the first covenant was not ratified without blood. What he's really talking about here is not so much about wills, but he's talking about how the covenant works, and that it involves blood and the death of, in the, in the old covenant, an animal. So he's leading up to the where he's talking, he's going to talk about the death of Jesus Christ. So in some ways, where it sounds like a little bit of legalistic language of wills and so on, what he's really trying to say is, look, the way the old covenant worked is an animal had to be sacrificed in order to bring about a certain kind of atonement, in which case the priest reading would say, well, of course, that's what we did when we went into it, is we were offering over this animal to God representing our own lives. But what he really wants to do is go on and talk about how blood brings about atonement. So what he's really talking about is not so much wills and testaments as much as he's talking about atonement. And where the point he wants to lead them to is that Jesus Christ is not only our high priest, but mysteriously, he's a priest who offers his own blood by his own death. This is, I think, one of the most amazing parts of this book is it would be enough if he just told us Jesus is our high priest. But he's reminding us he's the high priest and the offering, both at the same time, right? Because Jesus is the high priest. What does John the Baptist call him? Behold the Lamb of God, right? Jesus' death occurred at Passover when the uh, lambs were slaughtered at Passover. The gospel is reminding us that he is our eternal sacrifice. So in every way, he's trying to take the, um, the, what we call the economy of the temple and say it has been surpassed. There's a new high priest. There's a new sacrifice. There's a new temple, and they've all been raised up to the heavenly realms.
And then lastly, he's also subtly saying that if you're a priest of the old covenant, well, that means that the high priest that you have isn't quite so holy and permanent. The offerings that you offer, they're efficacious, but only to a point because you got to do them over and over and over again. And that temple itself was only a shadow of the heavenly temple, which I mentioned as a reference to, to Exodus. So big picture, what he's really trying to say is, I want you to move beyond your earlier Jewish roots and embrace Jesus Christ as your high priest, as your offering, and as your temple. And if you could get them to that place, then they would be able to, you might say, unhitch themselves from the Mosaic law and from their Jewish law and fully embrace Jesus Christ and receive, uh, be received as full, um, uh, full communion Christians and participate in the Eucharistic assembly. And my last point, I believe that he was at least in part successful that this letter would have penetrated the hearts of at least some of these priests who would have in turn converted, taken on greater roles in the church, and very likely become evangelists to many, many others. So I, I want to say that, you know, many people read the book and say, well, it's, it's kind of cool, but it's really not about me. It's written for priests. No, it is written for you, but it's written for people who need conversion to go beyond um, old ways, uh, former ways of religion to a higher place, which is to Jesus Christ. Great. Thank you, Dr. Smith. We have one last question coming in. Where does the ministerial priesthood, as we have it today, fit in the context of Hebrews? Well, I think you could say that the, um, the invitation to these particular priests may well be, you know, to the new covenant, because he's not simply asking them to leave something, to turn away from something, but to turn towards something. So, I would argue that it's possible that he has in mind that these very priests of the old covenant seeing their temple and system as obsolete. But if he were just to leave the message at that, they would say, oh gosh, I, could, I go home sad now because, you know, he's saying, okay, I'm a Christian, but my, 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 my priesthood is obsolete. And I would say perhaps that takes on a new and holy character for them if they were to be supposedly ordained, right, as ministers of the new covenant. Um, I'll end with this story. I have a, um, a deacon at my parish in Pennsylvania who was a Protestant minister for 25 years. Uh, please pray for him. His name is David Hall. He's a very holy man. I, I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning his name, but he has a melanoma I just found out on his ear. He could use our prayer. God willing, he's going to be just fine, but he's an incredible guy, incredible preacher. And he has used all of his gifts as a Protestant minister, but in ways that he never anticipated when he went through a Protestant seminary. So the way he describes his conversion is not a repudiation of his Protestantism, right? That God like took that away or that that wasn't a good thing, but that the Holy Spirit led him through Protestantism to see this new priesthood. Now, he's not a priest, but he is ordained. And he beautifully talks about how God used all of these former gifts of his Protestant ministry for some 20 years in order to prepare him to serve at the altar of Jesus Christ. And I just wonder with that story that if this guy doesn't have a little trick up his sleeve to say, hey, maybe we can get some new ministers in our church who would be amazing. Imagine Levites fully given over to Jesus Christ. I mean, imagine how they could preach, right? Imagine them being able to communicate how Jesus Christ is I mean, I would love to sit at their feet, you know, a Christian, a former Levite, and listen to them talk about 
uh, Jesus and the sacrifice of the mass, because I mean, that it would be mind-blowing, right? Because they would have had an inside knowledge like nobody else's business. And um, I would ask maybe we should, we should pray for our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, pray for their wisdom and knowledge and pray for their holiness and pray also for those who are thinking of coming home. There's a whole um, ministry you probably know called the Coming Home Network, with which Marcus Grodi through EWTN runs. And many, many, many ministers have come into the church. And I think it's a nice parallel between the book of Hebrews and these maybe would-be uh, Catholics who were kind of on the fence between the old priesthood and the new. And we should keep those men in our prayers. Thank you very much, Dr. Smith, for a wonderful presentation. Happy birthday, and so much. See you soon. God bless you, and let's keep praying for the for the priesthood up, upcoming of Deacon yes. Sabatino Carnazzo. Yes. God bless you, Monica. God bless you, everyone. God see bless. you good in person soon. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you soon. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.